And Jesus said unto them, These are the words which I spoke unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, Thus it is written, Thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry you in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as to Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass, while he blessed them, he was parted from them and carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God. I want to take for our text, verse 49. And behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry you in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. We see here in Luke 2.49 a promise from the Lord. And it is ratified, if we could put it that way, by Jesus because he said, I send the promise. I send the promise. This, I believe, was his seal upon what he had said. You see, it says in uh, Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? So we, we have that assurance as the disciples did that day, that this is a promise which Jesus said that he was sending. And he does not change his word. Psalm 119, verse 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endure forever. And you see, we can know that Jesus will not lie or will not change his mind because he does not, in fact, speaks greatly against lying. In fact, it's one of the things he hates. But also, it tells us in Psalm 12:22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. But those who act faithfully are his delight. Then we go into the New Testament, Colossians 3, 9, and 10. Do not lie one to one another, saying that you have put off the old self and with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so Jesus wants us to be the image of him. And to be the image of him, then we are not to lie. And therefore, he can't tell us we are not to lie if he is a liar. And so beyond any shadow of a doubt, we know that this, as it were, has a royal seal on it. This promise will, well, we know it did, but will come to pass. And he's speaking to the disciples uh, just before he ascended. And these disciples, as we have said before, you know, think of it, these men walked with Jesus for the three years of his, of his ministry. They witnessed his wisdom. It must have been awe-inspiring to see people trying to entrap him, to see people trying to question him, and just to see that wisdom shining forth. They witnessed his miracles. 
seeing people uh, rise from the dead. It must have been awesome just to walk on the earth with Jesus. They witnessed his love. They seen him approaching people that religion would not let anyone else approach Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the lepers, bringing Matthew, another tax collector, and making him one of his disciples. So they witnessed his love. The Seraphishian woman, the woman at the well, all these people who the world would have rejected, the religion of the day would have wanted stoned. They witnessed the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the thing also. They received his teaching. They received his teaching. But the surprising thing for me is uh, Luke 24, verse 45. It says, Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. Now, if he needed to open their understanding, that tells me that they didn't understand. And we know they didn't understand because they still, uh, up until he was crucified, didn't want them to be crucified, even though he had taught them what must happen. They didn't understand. Jesus had to open the eyes of the disciples. These men that walked with him in the, the couple of years that he was here on earth, he had to open their understanding that they might understand the scripture. And I thought to myself, Lord, have I ever prayed, open my understanding? You know, sometimes we just pick up the Bible in our daily reading and we read a chapter, we read a page, we read a verse. But I wonder, do we pray before it? Lord, open my understanding. Because we want to know God's word. Because I believe that down through time, many wise men, many academics, they have read the Bible and with either good or bad intentions, they have not fully understood it. They have not fully understood it. You see, the word of God is too high, too wise, too hidden by the Spirit for normal men to understand. Jesus needs to open their understanding. He needs to open their understanding. The psalmist said in Psalm 115 and 5, 135 and 16, he said, they have mouths, but they speak not. They have eyes, but they see not. And this is because their understanding was not opened. They did not understand. And there's people who can quote you verses. There's people who can quote you chapters. And different sections from the Bible, they can give you their opinion on it. But their understanding is not open. I was listening to an Islamic scholar who had been invited to speak in an American college and the students were allowed to ask him questions. And he said that nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible does it say that Jesus is God. If someone had heard me, they would have thought I'd lost my mind. I was screaming at the screen, someone stand up and tell him. Isaiah 9, verse 6, 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. I get to give them a few verses. If you give me time, I'll take them from Genesis to Revelation, and I'll show them it says Jesus is God. But the understanding isn't there for him. And sadly, the understanding wasn't there for their students and their, their, their lecturers. We need our understanding opened. You see, when Jesus opened their understanding, he told the disciples, look, I am to suffer. 
We know that they didn't want him to suffer. Peter threatened to fight to the death before he would let him be crucified. But here he opens their understanding in telling them that it is must needs that he must suffer. It's important because he dies on the cross and he would rise from the dead the third day. It was their understanding needed to see that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. And he was opening their understanding for a reason. And if we say, Lord, open my understanding, the reason we need to understand standing open is that we might share his word. Because the next thing he said to them, if we see it in Luke uh, 24, 48, and you are my witnesses of these things. You are my witnesses of these things. So he took the, 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 the covering off their eyes. He explained from the scriptures, I'm sure, how he must suffer, how he must die on the cross, how he would rise again the third day, how he would ascend unto heaven, how he would one day return, the things concerning his return that people will see. All these things they began to understand. Why? That you are my witnesses of these things. But you see, unlike some church, I don't believe that Jesus was saying this to the disciples and they were the only ones to be witnesses. They, were the, they had certainly and actually personally witnessed uh, these events that, that he spoke of. But they were not the only ones chosen to be his witnesses. Every Christian, everyone who surrenders their life to the Lord Jesus Christ is called to be a witness of the sacrifice of Christ, called to be a witness that he rose again the third day, and called to be a witness that he will return in glory. Every Christian is called to spread the gospel throughout the world. Some are called to the mission field, but we are all called to spread the gospel in our homes, to spread the gospel amongst our families. We are called to spread the gospel in our schools, in our universities, in our workplace. We are called to spread the gospel wherever we socialize. Wherever we socialize. You know, it's great when you meet a Christian who's not afraid to spread the gospel. I was out on Friday afternoon playing golf on my own, Billy Nomates. <laughs> and I came across a, a four ball. They were, they were in front of me. That means four golfers were playing in front of me. And so I caught them at a par three hole and they were going to let me play through and while I was setting up I heard one of them talking about Jesus to his friends and I was so blessed the difference God made in his life and you know that's just a game of golf and you need to talk to golfers because it's the most frustrating game in the world <laughs> and share the gospel you need to share God's gospel you see, we are God's witnesses. But here's the wonderful thing. Jesus makes provision for the things that he asks us to do. He doesn't give us something that we are not capable of doing. If we do something and we fail, it's because we have stepped into a, a path that Jesus hasn't opened for us. He knows our limits. He knows what we can do. And what he did was he gave a promise to the disciples, and that disciples, or that promise, sorry, it's to you and me today. 
And that promise says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. And he told him to tarry in Jerusalem when until you be endued with power from on high. The Greek word enduo, it means to clothe or be clothed with in the sense of sinking into a garment. Or it means I put on or I clothe another. So Jesus is saying, we know about the robes of righteousness. We're clothed with the robes of righteousness. He is clothing us with the Holy Ghost. In other words, he is covering us. You were covered with his blood and he's covering us with his spirit. As his church, we need to put on his spirit in this world that we are living in. As I've said, like a, a general will, will clothe his soldiers with protective armor, will equip them for the battle. This is what Jesus is doing. And sadly, the majority of churches in the world today are rejecting that endowment. They think they can survive on their own. They think they are wise enough. They think they are strong enough. They think they're appealing enough. You know, we can give the greatest effort to, to see someone saved, but you know what the reality is? Unless the Holy Ghost convicts them, they'll not come to Jesus. What we need to do is pray that the Holy Ghost will convict them. Jesus is clothing us with his spirit. In Webster's American Dictionary of the English language, it says the English word in Jew coincides nearly in significance with endow. That is to put on, to furnish, to put on something, to invest, to clothe. The, the compact edition of the Oxford English Dictionary notes that endure means to put on as a garment, to clothe, or to cover. We are covered with God's Spirit if we seek it. The Greek word enduo, uh, again, another dictionary lets us know it has two meanings. The first is to dress, to clothe someone, to clothe oneself, or to put on. And secondly, it's used figuratively, means to take on the characteristics, virtue, and intentions. So when Jesus clothes us with his spirit, we are taking on his characteristics. We are taking on his power. Because remember, the promise was, these things that you see me do, you will do. And even greater things than this. But we cannot do it unless we are endued with power from on high. Unless we have a hunger to be endued with power from on high. This gives us an opportunity as his church in this latter day to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and put on his spirit. Galatians 3.27, for as many as you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. We kind of read that as if it's uh, the, the robes of righteousness that we're, we're putting on salvation. But it's a complete robe we're putting on. It's his spirit. It's his endowment of power from on high. You see, church, for me, the church in the world today is more interested in prospering than sacrificing. They're bringing people in and telling them how they're going to prosper. And how God wants them to prosper. And he does. Personal gain is being taught rather than a total surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, the most famous verse of all is Jeremiah 29 and 11. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord of peace. Not of evil. To give, uh, to give you an unexpected end. We all know that that's one of the 
most well-known verses in the Bible. If you go into a Christian bookshop, you'll see little frames with this verse quoted. You'll see coffee cups with this verse on it to encourage people. But you know, church, despite its popularity, the meaning of Jeremiah 29 and 11 is often misused and often misapplied. It's a bit like I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. The, the, the original meaning, and I'm told the, the proper meaning, is I can master every situation through Christ which strengthens me. And so therefore, it can, Jeremiah 29 and 11, can be misquoted. Many Christians have memorized this verse. As I've said, they've hung it on the walls in their house. When you go in, you can see it. But we need to understand it in its proper context. If we ignore the context in which the Bible is written, we can make, literally make it say anything we want. So what is Jeremiah 28, 9, and 11 actually telling us? Well, we have to look at the context. And we will look at this verse, the verse previous to it, in Jeremiah 29, and see what's happening historically at the time, and it'll give us a better understanding. We need to look at it, Jeremiah 29 and 11, so that we're not twisting it and not misusing it. Again, it's mostly used to, to encourage people in the sense that personal gain. A lot of uh, prosperity teachers and preachers quote Jeremiah 29 and 11. But church, God has a wonderful and perfect plan for me. And that's what we're being told using Jeremiah 29 and 11. And God does have a plan for us. But many take this verse and, and apply it specifically to them. This is a me verse, as one commentator had said. And all they have to do is walk in obedience to God. Others take this verse a step further, claiming that this is a promise of health and wealth. It is not. They're saying, since we are the children of the king, we should only expect the best. And they come and they're told to, to give to Lord and they will receive. That's a wanting heart. I've said it many times. God does not bless a wanting heart. God blesses a willing heart. If we're willing to give to the Lord, he is willing to bless us. But if we give God 10 pound this morning and think, right, God, it's your responsibility to give me 100 pound, you've given the wrong motives. You've given the wrong motives. The main problem, is, as a few actually commentators I read have said, people translate this as a very me-centered verse. It's all about what God's going to do for me. And that's not its meaning. So when we read the Bible, we cannot ignore the context, as I've said. And we should do three things, therefore, when we look at a verse like this. What we should do is look at the surrounding verses. Then consider the original audience. That's those whom the Lord is talking to or through God's servants or what. Then look at the larger narrative of the Bible. And so to help us understand this, we focus primarily on the first two, on the surrounding verses and the original audience. The Bible teaches us that selflessness, not a me-centered faith. So when you take time to read Jeremiah 29, you will see that the Lord is talking to the nation of Israel through the prophet Jeremiah. Now, during this time, the Israelites were captive in, in captivity in Babylon. They were slaves. And that's an important thing to take note of, of this passage. It's addressed to slaves. 
This is the audience. It's addressed to slaves who were living in enemy territory. And they weren't living comfortably. They were forced labor. And they were having a hard time. But in this time of captivity, there were false prophets going around claiming that God was going to release his people soon. And this made Jeremiah very unpopular. You know, people think men of God uh, were loved in the Bible and were very popular. They weren't. They were hated because they preached the truth. Jeremiah was beaten and put in prison. So there were false prophets and Jeremiah was speaking out against them. And in verse, uh, uh, sorry, in Jeremiah 29, God is denouncing these false prophets and telling his people that they are going to have to wait 70 years more. That was not a popular thing to say, especially when other ones were going around telling them, no, God's going to deliver us, and everything's going to be wonderful, and God's going to prosper. And Jeremiah comes along and says, no, he's not. You will be here 70 more years. That's bad news. It's not popular news. And you can maybe see why some people didn't want to hear it. Not only did they have to live in captivity for 70 more years, but God was instructing them to seek peace while they are there. They wanted deliverance. These false prophets were telling them they were going to get deliverance. But Jeremiah, through the the inspiration of God, told them, you're not. We will be in captivity 70 years. And while we're here, we have to continue to seek God and know his peace. So as I've said, it was tough news to hear for some of them. Most of them hearing this message would be dead before they get back to their promised land. And I'm sure they didn't want to hear that. They will be dead and buried by the time they are freed from this captivity. It's a tough pill to swallow. But this is who Jeremiah 29 and 11 was written to. Real people that were going through a really tough time. God wasn't going to make them millionaires. God wasn't going to release them from their captivity. They were to stay there for 70 years. Please read it for yourself. You will see that. And so therefore, Jeremiah 29 and 11, in a sense, I would suggest, it's not a personal message written to you. It's to God's people. It's not a promise that if we follow God, he will allow us to prosper in everything in life. He will make us rich. We'll never have any troubles. We'll never have any illnesses. That is a misreading and a misquotation. This verse is written to a people who will likely die as slaves. Because if you go back to the, 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 the wilderness, they were told that they will travel for 40 years so that all those that came back with a bad report and received a bad report would be dead before they entered the promised land. That was only 40 years. This time it's 70 years they're going to have to wait before there's deliverance. This wasn't a good message that Jeremiah had to give. And he addressed a group of people, God's people, not individuals. It's a promise that God is still in control, even when things are bleak. You're going to remain in captivity. But what are we going to do? Jeremiah was saying, God is still in control. This is from God. And God will watch over you. God will give you his peace in the midst of your troubles. It's a promise that through tough times, they might not make sense to them now. They might be questioning. 
but they need to understand God's plan is still good. God's plan is still good. This verse is giving hope to a group of people that are struggling with understanding what God is doing and God sent his servant to explain it to them because it was false prophets giving them false hopes. It was written to a real people during a specific time in history. And that does not mean that it is no application for the church today. It just means that it's not a personal promise for a personal individual to prosper. It is written for you, but it's not written to you. So what is that meaning? Well, it's a personal promise. It's not a personal promise, sorry. It's a powerful reminder that God is in control. Are you confused about what's going on in the world today? I don't fear it, but I am concerned about it. But you know something? God is telling me I am still in control. I am still in control. In my prayer life church, God is telling me that things are getting bleak and will continue to get bleak. And as our brother prayed this morning, thank you for that confirmation about what I'm now going to say. Economically, our country is going to get worse. There's going to be more civil unrest. Throughout the world, there could be more wars. You look at China and India now siding up with Russia. And so there's wars, there's rumors of wars, and people are trying to understand what's going on today. God is saying, I am still in control. Trust in me. Because at the end of the day, church, what are we told to do? Look up, for your redemption draweth nigh. Our deliverance will come nigh. God is not going to take us out and cover us with uh, this bubble wrap that we don't get injured. But he's going to be with us and he's going to bless us. Even when things don't seem like it, even when life is tough, even when the world is falling apart, church, God is in control. God was faithful to fulfill his promise to the nation of Israel. He did just what he said he would do throughout the Bible. And this should bring you and I hope today that God will continue to fulfill his promise. Even in dark days and difficult situations, we have a hope this morning. And that hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. That hope is that he will see us through any storms, any adversities, any trials. He will see us through. As I've said, it's not a promise that God's going to make you rich. It's not a promise that God's going to clear your credit card debts. It's a promise that he will bless you and he will keep you. As long as we trust in God, our lives will be secure. They're not going to be easy. But we will be secure. After all, following Jesus is the only way to go in the midst of what's going on in the world today. We will follow, uh, we do follow him and we will face similar struggles. We'll not maybe be slaves, but we'll face persecution. Jesus himself said, they will persecute you for my name's sake. And so when we read Jeremiah 29 and 11, it's a reminder that we will face difficulties in this life. But also in this life, God's promises are still true. His word is yea and amen. He is still faithful and will bring us through. It's a promise that God's plan is a good plan and he will fulfill it. 
Jesus opens the door for everyone. In other words, we are all his people, so the truth of this verse is still true today. It's promising that we will have troubles. The Israelites didn't want to hear it. They'd rather listen to the false voices telling them the better sounding noise. And I'm sure this morning you would like me to tell you everything's going to be wonderful. Everything's going to be great. When we preach the gospel, everybody's going to hug us and thank us. Church, they're not. We will face opposition. And we as individuals will face troubles. It's telling us that when life will get incredibly difficult, God is in control. And while this difficult season might not end tomorrow, in fact, might not end in a couple of us, our, our lifetimes, but the point is God is still in control and he will bring his people through. It's not a promise of life where there's nothing to worry about because God's not a liar. It's a promise of a life in the midst of troubles. We can have God's peace. We can have faith in God. We believe in God. Trusting his plan is what's best for us, even when it doesn't make sense. As I've said, God sees things that we cannot. And that's why I would encourage you, God, open my understanding to see his hand is with us. And we can find peace and rest in that. When God's servant ran back into the tent of the prophet, he said, look, the enemies have come. We're going to be wiped out. What did the prophet say? Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And he opened his eyes and he seen the vast armies, God's armies, ready to protect them. You know, the gospel message isn't one of an easy life, church. It's a promise that we can hope, and we have hope, sorry, because God has overcome death and is walking beside us, walking with us. And this is the thing which we take from our text. God knew there would be difficulties. God knows the difficulties that you and I will face. God knows that the devil is busy today in the media and the pop world. It's unbelievable some of the things that are going on. And again, I recommend you to tune in on YouTube on Truth Unveiled Ministries. It's unbelievable. If you look at some of the debates which they put on in American universities, and don't be saying that's America. Church, it's either here or it will be here soon. In London, Speaker's Corner was famous for preaching the gospel. Do you know there's Christians assaulted there every Sunday? And in a clip I watched, they arrested a woman who was assaulted because she was offending those of other religions by preaching the gospel. I'm sure some of you don't believe me because I didn't believe it, but I've seen it. So there's persecution, church, but God's in control. Life's not going to be easy, but if we're strong, God is in control. And to help us, he has endued us with power from on high. He is saying, here it is. And we are saying, oh, no, I'm all right. I don't want that, Lord. We can put on his power for these last days to see us through the hard times, see us through the difficulties, see us through the rejection, see us through the persecution. But you know something? When his church, the body of Christ, seek the infilling of the Holy Ghost, when his church do not constrain the power of God in their lives, in their churches, in their land, then we will see a mighty move of God. 
For his plan is for his church to prosper in the midst of adversities. His plan is for his church to prosper in the midst of what's going on in the world today. And it's his plan that he wants to empower us. Church, let us not constrain the spirit. Let us worship the Lord. Let there be shouts of joy in the house of the Lord. I don't want to belong to the church of Borum Stiff. I want to belong to a living, lively church which will cry out unto God. We'll go to theaters, we'll go to sports stadiums and people will scream their heads off and we'll think it's great. And we come to church, what do we want? Ventriloquist worship. Now I'm not talking about Glenmagan, church worldwide here. We need to shake off these shackles, church, and worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. We need to break forth in the gifts of the Spirit and use the gifts of the Spirit. We need to hear the tongues going in the house of the Lord. We need to hear the interpretation going in the house of the Lord. Don't hold back. You're constraining yourself. You're, you're robbing yourself of this opportunity. And I've said it and I'll say it again. The Holy Ghost gifts are not all about tongues. I believe they're important, but it's not all about that. There's other gifts. There's working of miracles. There's discernment. God can give us knowledge, but we need to seek it. We need to have a hunger for God. And that hunger will be displayed in how long we spend with the Lord. It will be displayed by our appearance at a prayer meeting. Or I've been there times you can't come midweek because you work. I know that I was there for years. But you know something? There's a secret place where we can seek the face of the Lord. Lord, open my understanding to understand the scriptures. Lord, fill me with your spirit. Help me to release the gifts within me and not constrain them because I'm too shy. I'm too worried about offending someone. I'm too worried about sounding silly. Do you know something? You don't sound silly in God's ears and that's all that matters. You don't sound silly in the ears of the Lord when you're worshiping him. You mightn't be able to sing and other people beside you might be going, oh my Lord, listen to that there. But you know what? The Lord's rejoicing over you because you're lifting your voice to the one who saved you, to the one who gave his life for you, to the one who created you, and to the one who's coming back to rule and to reign in eternity. And you will be there as one of his children. And I guarantee you, you'll be singing that day. Amen. You will be singing that day because there'll be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more tears. All these things will pass away. And so it's our prayer that you, church, get filled with the Holy Ghost that you here this morning have never committed your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look around you. See what's going on in the world. And you are bound to be concerned. But you know something? God has a remedy. He died on the cross for your sins. And if you surrender your life to him, when you get up in the morning, you'll still have to pay your mortgage. If you have an appointment with a doctor, you're still going to have to go to the doctor. But do you know something? Excuse me. The difference will be that God will be with you and God will bless you. 
and God will see you through. And listen to this, God's people will stand beside you as they should do and encourage you. Even when you fall, you know when a soldier falls, oh, hallelujah, I'll wind up here. When a soldier goes down in battle, his, his comrades don't run away and leave him. They go and they pick him up and get him back into the battle. If you fall in church, we're here to pick you up. If you're on the Jericho Road, we're here to pour in the oil and the wine and get you back in the road. In unity together, we can take this land for the Lord Jesus Christ. Not because we're great singers, not because we're wonderful people, because we are endued with power from on high. Could the musicians come back? We'll leave it there this morning, but come on, church, let's worship the Lord. And let's just pray that God really does make a, a big move in our lives. And let's pray that we will prosper as his people despite any situation, despite any trial. You know, I said at the start, pray for our Sunday school teachers. Pray for those in our congregation who are teachers in school because they have a very difficult task and they're trying to put restraints on them on what they can and cannot say. And so we're praying for God's wisdom and God's protection in them as they teach and influence the young people.